Hear now God's holy word from Hosea chapter 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. As they called them, so they went from them. They sacrificed to the Baals and burned incense to carved images. I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love. And I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. I stooped and fed them. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I set you like Zeboim? My heart churns within me. My sympathy is stirred. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we thank you for your word. And today, as we consider your fatherhood of your son, Israel, and your fatherhood over us, We pray that we would be inspired by your Holy Spirit to more and more imitate your fatherly care for those who we have been tasked to train and grow up and and discipline. We pray for your mercies on us and our children. And so strengthen me as I work to deliver these things today. Lift me up, fill me with your spirit, I pray, and help uh, this to be an articulate, uh, uh, helpful time of, of study in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. How would you describe your relationship to your father? Does that question make you a little bit uncomfortable? Does that question stir up all kinds of complex thoughts and feelings? For many of us, it, it does. And you can learn a lot about a person by asking that one question, learning how they respond to life and how they respond to difficulties and how they do uh, life. Whether your father was present or absent, whether he was involved in your life or whether he was wrapped up in his own life, whether he was tender and compassionate or whether he was a harsh disciplinarian, whether you had a good dad or a bad dad, the mark that he left on your life is undeniable and indelible. Mothers are indispensable. I'm not denying that whatsoever. But the powerful presence of a father, for good or ill, has a way of shaping children in a way that no one else can. The father sets the tone. He sets the pace. He is the gateway. He is the doorkeeper for the house. So even if a father isn't there, the vacuum that he leaves is going to shape the way his children grow up into understanding themselves and understanding the world around them. It may be due to a great absence of faithful fathers that many either implicitly or explicitly ask, what's the point of fathers anyway? We can get along just fine without them. We can do just as well with or without fathers. We also hear all kinds of protests from liberal Christians, whether it's appropriate to refer to God as father at at all. All of the rainbow flag, big steeple, mainline churches fall all over themselves not to use any masculine pronouns for God. Listen very closely. They change the lyrics to hymns. They have changed the scriptures themselves to ignore God as father and to not use any masculine pronouns for God because after all, we've had such bad experiences with human fathers. How can we invite the world to love a heavenly father? Is not God, the father, is he not just as aloof and angry and unapproachable as our earthly dads? Or so the thought seems to go. 
And of course, we don't, we don't fix anything by denying bedrock truths. The way to recover faithful human fatherhood is not to reject God's fatherhood, but to understand what kind of father God is and to imitate his fatherhood. In order to do this, we need to dispense with the myth right away, right off the top, dismiss the myth that the God, especially the God of the Old Testament, was this irascible, cold, distant, cosmic judge who had a bag of lightning bolts and he was just waiting to hurl one at you the first time that you messed up. He would just zap you. That's the uh, image that's been around since um, at least Marcion. There was a heretic um, in, in, the, in the early centuries named Marcion who divided the Bible in such a way. He said the God of the Old Testament was a monster and now Jesus uh, shows us a, a new way. You know, Jesus is the uh, fulfillment and the reflection and the revelation of God the Father. Uh, we're not talking about two different gods, obviously. Throughout the scriptures, God addresses himself as a loving, patient, tender, gracious, merciful Father who gives himself to his people. He pursues his people in love. It is his people who are rebellious and it's their sin that have, has made themselves unapproachable, unresponsive, remote in their sins. It's the people who are aloof. It's the people who are unpleasant, not God himself. That has nothing to do with God. His, his fatherhood is perfect and loving and compassionate. And yet the people are the ones who have removed themselves. And yet the Lord pursues them repeatedly through many generations. He calls them to faithfulness. He eagerly blesses them beyond what they deserve, beyond what they could ask or think. He showers them with blessings. But at the same time, he puts restraints on their wickedness. He puts up roadblocks when they're headed into self-destructive behavior. He corrects and disciplines. Throughout the Old Testament, God is repeatedly referred to as the father of Israel. And his love toward his son, Israel, is compared to the tender compassion of a loving father toward his child. In Exodus, uh, Yahweh's son is being abused and held captive by Pharaoh. And so the Lord says to Moses, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says Yahweh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. God's message to Pharaoh is you've got my boy. You've got my son. You're abusing and hatefully oppressing my son. Let him go, Pharaoh. And the other part of that message was, if you don't let my son go, I'm gonna get your son. And that's of course what happens. But that is God's relationship to his son Israel, that of a protecting, loving, compassionate Father. God's relationship to his people is not cold and it's not distant. In Deuteronomy 1.31, after the wilderness wanderings, after the time of exile, when the new generation is about to go into the land, he tells Israel, I carried you through the wilderness as a father carries his son. That whole time that you were wandering in the wilderness, it's like when you're walking uh, with your little ones and the, uh, and, and the tiniest legs, they can't keep up. The little legs are tired. And so you scoop up the little one and you carry him or you carry her. And God says to Israel, that's exactly how I carried you. I picked you up when your legs were too tired and I carried you through the wilderness. 
That fatherly care is his basis, the basis of the promises to continue fighting for them and defending them. In Deuteronomy 8.5, Moses says, you should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so Yahweh your God chastens you. Chasten means not only to discipline, it does mean that. It means to provide negative consequences for disobedience. But chasten also means instruct, teach, train, warn. And so when he does respond to Israel's disobedience with chastisement, it's not because he hates them. It's not because he's just aggravated with them. It's not because he wants to show them who's bigger or who's boss. It's because he loves them. Not disciplining them would be hateful. Now, all of these references that I just gave you, everything that I just gave you, that's from the Pentateuch. And there are many, many more. I'm only giving you a small sample. But these are all from the law. The, the, the law itself is the loving communication from the heart of a father to his son. I'm going to instruct you in how to live. I'm going to instruct you in how to walk upright. I'm going to teach you how to speak and how to think and how to go. We read a part of Hosea's prophecy just a few minutes ago. Hosea was a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel that was very close to the brink of disaster. When Hosea comes, uh, Israel is off the rails with perversion, spiritual adultery, idolatry. Everything that could go wrong is going wrong in in Israel. And they're about to be consumed by the Assyrian empire. But before that happens, God sends them Hosea who preaches this heart-wrenching message to them. And in chapter 11, we get this picture of God as a tender father calling to his wayward son. You get a clear sense of the agony of the father whose love for his rebellious son is unrequited. He calls for his son and his son is not responding. And as a faithful father, he still seeks to bless his son despite his rebellion. He gave him everything and yet Israel didn't love him back. We have this beautiful imagery here of, of God the Father teaching his son to walk. He says, uh, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Verse 3, I taught Ephraim to walk. Ephraim was the biggest tribe in the northern kingdom of Israel. And sometimes the whole kingdom is referred to as Ephraim. He says, I taught you to walk. I took you by your arm you didn't know it was me that healed you. I was the one that, 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 that picked you up and, and, and cleaned up your skin, knees, and your bruises. You didn't know it was me. I drew you with gentle cords, with bands of love. Yeah, I might have, have lassoed you to draw you back, but it's not out of hate because these are bands of love. These are cords of love. I'm restraining your sin and I'm pulling you close to me. He said, I, uh, I, was to those, I was to them as those who take the yoke from the neck. I lifted your oppressors and tyrants off your back. I stooped down. I got down on my hands and knees to feed you, he says. And yet in all of this, the son did not respond. He held his hand. He taught him to walk. He bound up his wounds. He led him with kindness and love. He caressed him and fed him. And what we get in the face of that is repulsive responses of a wayward son. He doesn't respond to the father when he's called. He runs away from the father. He worships other gods. He ignores the goodness of the father. And yet the father continues to pursue him and he calls his name and opposes his disobedience. And then I, I, I kind of slid down and picked up verse eight. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? 
How can I make you like Adma? How can I set you like Zeboim? You know those two cities, right? Adma and Zeboim. Everybody knows who they are. <laughs> who are they? You know, there were two other cities that were destroyed when uh, Sodom and Gomorrah uh, were destroyed. There were other cities on the plain, and Adma and Zeboim were two of the other cities that caught uh, the, uh, the, the hailstones, that caught the fire from, from heaven. And God says, I've set you apart. I'm not going to treat you like these pagan, idolatrous, wicked, perverted cities. I'm not going to treat you like that. I have set my love on you, and I'm not going to treat you that way. You're special to me. Uh, and then he says, my heart churns within me. My sympathy is stirred. Read that and tell me that God, the father of the Old Testament, is cold and distant and aloof and can't be bothered with you. He can't. He's a tender father. And again, this is just a sampling of the ways that Yahweh reveals himself to his people as father. And in his interactions with them, he demonstrates what consistent, holy fatherhood looks like. He disciplines his sons and his daughters. He brings them up. He loves them. He gives them a purpose. He has an inheritance for them because he's a good father. He goes out of his way to bless them. He satisfies their mouth with good things. He guides them through fruitful seasons and times of drought. He takes them through good times and bad times. He longs for his children's affection and attention. He delivers them from oppressors. He gives them rest. He gives them work. He heals them. He's compassionate and kind. He's loving and merciful. He's tender and caring. He knows their frame. He tells them when they are a delight to him and when they are a pleasure to him. Everything he does as a father is a demonstration not only of his character, but it's also a model for us. You and I don't have any better example of fatherhood, you know, not Ward Cleaver or uh, uh, the Brady Bunch dad or what's his name? No, never mind. You'll tell me later. Mike Brady. Yeah, thank you uh, for the trivia. Um, Yeah, you don't have a better example of what fatherhood looks like. He disciplines his his sons and daughters in love. Uh, We we can imitate his fatherly care for his people, knowing that that we're going to, we're we're following the perfect example. Uh, Last week, we spent time considering the role of parents as stewards over God's children, as well as the fact that we are representatives of God to our children. We show our children what God is like all the time. We are preaching messages about God to our children every day. Sometimes, and I pray more often than not, we're preaching theologically sound messages to our children. We're showing them rightly who God is. But sometimes we preach heresy to our children. We're showing them by our behavior that God is easily irritated, God is hard to please, God is confusing, and God doesn't want what's best for them. We, we can teach them those lessons in our own sin. And so we're continually being uh, sanctified and we're maturing as parents to reflect God's fatherhood. Today, I want to ask what lessons can we learn from God's fatherhood of his son Israel by considering how did he raise up his son to maturity? The whole story of Israel, the whole history of Israel is the story of how God trained up his son through three stages of maturity. A simple outline of Israel's history is that Israel was first brought through a priestly stage then a kingly stage, then a prophetic stage of maturity. Each 
phase of maturity brought with it its own privileges, its own set of expectations, its own boundaries. And the stages of maturity that Israel went through are a helpful paradigm for our own maturation and for our children. Now, some of you know this priest-king-prophet paradigm well because we've gone over it a few times over the years. For some of you, it's brand new. So if you've heard this before, consider this a quick review because we're going to move on to apply it to our children and how we raise our children as faithful priests, as faithful kings, and as faithful prophets. So a quick review. God, God raised up Israel, his son, through three stages of maturity, priest, king, prophet. First, when God established the nation of Israel, he says in Exodus 19, he says, you are a kingdom of priests. Now, there was a class of people within Israel who were the priestly class, but the whole nation was to be a priestly kingdom. And as a priestly kingdom, God gives them a house and it gives them rules for how you live in that house and what you're supposed to do with that house. The house had a place to wash. It had a place to eat. They had laws of sacrifice and laws of cleanness. There were things to do and there were things not to do, things you could touch and things you couldn't touch. If you had a question about any of this, you didn't have to come up with the answer on your own. You didn't have to ponder, am I allowed to touch uh, a dead carcass? Am I allowed to eat uh, that thing? Or am I allowed to sacrifice this thing? You, you don't, you're not trusted to come up with an answer on your own. You don't have to. You just go look up the answer in Leviticus and you got your, you got your answer. That was the priestly phase. Then after several generations, we enter a kingly period with David as king. When David becomes king, worship is transformed. There are instruments, there are psalms. The priests are still there, but they fade to the background and the king is front and center. The king is the new thing with the monarchy. The kings represent the nation before God and the world. Under the priestly stage, we got laws and we got ordinances. But now in the kingly age, we have Psalms and we have Proverbs and we have Ecclesiastes. We have wisdom literature that looks at the world and flips it around and turns it upside down and looks at it from every angle. We are, we're, we're not forgetting what we learned back in the priestly age, but we're now applying it in new ways to new contexts. This is kingly time. This is wisdom time. Several generations later, the kingdom of, of Israel is divided. Both Israel and Judah go into exile the monarchy comes to an end and there is no king. So during this phase of history, leadership is provided through the prophets. We move from the kingly phase of history to the prophetic. Now there are still priests, they lead worship and there are some political figures who serve in kingly capacities. But the most prominent leaders of this last age are Jeremiah and Daniel and Haggai and Zechariah. Israel is a people led by their prophets. Prophets call down judgment on old dying worlds. Uh, judgment, uh, uh, prophets are heralds of new worlds. Their words bring new realities to life. And so it's through these phases of history that God brings up a people to a point that they produce the true and faithful son, the firstborn among the brethren, Jesus, who is the perfect priest and king and prophet. And then we are conformed to his image by being brought through these stages of life ourselves. Each stage is vital to our maturity. We must all pass through these three stages of life to get to uh, uh, maturity. We begin life, we all begin life in a priestly stage. We begin under the complete care of our parents. 
There are specific commands that we learn how to obey. We learn how to submit, how to exercise self-control. Everything is black and white when you're a toddler. Don't touch that. Don't eat that. Don't pick that up. Don't go there. Come back. Come back. Come back. You know, everything is black and white. Everything is consistent. You know exactly what happens when you disobey, or you should, under the priestly phase of life. But then as you get a little bit older, as you go through young childhood and middle childhood, you get up into your teenage years and you enter a kingly phase. You get more responsibilities. You get to make some decisions. You operate by wisdom. And then as you enter adulthood, you grow into a prophetic phase of life. You find your calling. You start to exercise dominion. And eventually you grow to the point where you can give instruction and counsel to others. You transform the world around you. You have the foresight to to improve the environment around you in your workplace and in your home and in your community. So we all grow through these stages. We all must be faithful priests and faithful kings and faithful prophets, and then raise our children through these stages of maturity so that they can be just like Jesus. That's what we're after. Jesus uh, grew through these stages, and he, he proves, and he is faithful uh, to each stage of maturity. And so we want them to go. We want our children to go through these stages to his glory. So with this in mind, how do we raise up faithful priests? How do we raise up kings and prophets? Well, let's start at the beginning with these tiny priests, these little, these little infants. How does God address Israel in Israel's infancy? Well, he establishes a relationship with him and he calls him his son. He says, you're mine. I'm your God and you're my people. He brings them out of Egypt and he gives them life. The, the exodus is, is like a birth. When we go back and study that at some point, there's so many uh, reflections and symbols of, 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 of labor and delivery. The birth pangs of the plagues and the coming out of Egypt is so much like a, a birth in so many ways. They, they come out and they pass through the, the Red Sea. They pass through the baptismal waters of the Red Sea and he brings them to Sinai and he says, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. That's who I am. I'm your God. I'm the one who brought you out. I'm the one who gave you life. Now, here, now, now here's who you are. Here's your identity. You shall have no gods before me. You shall not make a graven image. You shall not bow down and serve them. You shall not carry my name in vain. That's who you are. You are identified by your obedience. You are identified by your response to me. That's who you are. You are my child. And, and here are my uh, uh, parameters. Here are my, my requirements for a child of God. So very first, uh, at first, very small children, even infants, even infants must know their identity. They need to hear and they need to sense that they are gifts of God and they need to know that they belong to him. Through, through words and songs and prayers, daddy and mommy speaking to them, And holding them close and kissing them is how we communicate to them their value and their importance. It's it's how we communicate God's love to them. David sings in Psalm 71, For you are my hope, O Lord God. You are my trust from my youth. Hang on to that word trust. He says, "From, from, from the time I was born, I trusted in you. You are my trust from my youth. By you, I have been upheld by, from birth. You are he who took me out of my mother's womb. My praise shall be continually of you. 
Last week we read part of Psalm 22. And let me remind you what that says. Uh, But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. There's that word trust again. David likes that word. And David likes to use the word trust when he's talking about himself as a baby. He's talking about himself as an infant. What's another word for trust? Faith. David says, I had trust in God. I had faith in God while on my mother's breast. If that's true, then that means that faith is not something that can only be expressed in intellectual terms. Faith is not just something that is, is, is only expressed with articulated theological propositions because David had faith as an infant. John the Baptist had faith in the womb. John the Baptist worshiped Jesus in the womb. And so did David. David says the same thing. I was cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb, you have been my God. I'm not sure that we can entirely understand or appreciate what even very small infants understand and know. But we do know that those early days of development are critical. If a child is neglected or if they don't receive warmth or affection very early on, they're likely to have attachment problems their entire life. They're going to have difficulties relating to people their whole life based on neglect early on. So we take great care in those early days. We affectionately bring them into our families. We give them great comfort and we give them great security in our homes. We grant them stability so that all their needs are going to be met. I used to joke uh, when, uh, you know, we're getting a bottle ready or getting something ready um, to, uh, for, our, for our little ones when they, were, when they were babies. I said, did you think I wasn't going to feed you today? Is that, is that why you're pitching a fit? Is that why you're so upset? You thought out of all these days, daddy and mommy have fed you, but today, ah, we're not going to do it. Now we're not going to feed you. No, it's ridiculous. You're going to get fed today and you're going to get fed tomorrow because that's the stability and the security that we provide in our, in our homes. Just as God gave Israel water from the rock, he gave them manna from heaven, all of their needs were taken care of. In their infancy, in their youth, in the priestly stage, all their needs were met. They didn't have to provide for themselves. They didn't have to worry. We also bring them into the church, into the family of God. They're publicly inducted into God's family at their baptism so that there's never any question whose they are, who they belong to, what their identity is. They grow up with this etched in their minds and their hearts. They are God's children, and they must embrace this and live as his children all their days. In Psalm 8, David sings, Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. Not only is the worship and praise of infants acceptable to God, but he says more than that. It's not only acceptable, it's my chief weapon against the enemy and the avenger. I love, I love the worship of babies and infants and of tiny children. Someone once said that every time a baby cries in church, a demon loses his wings. And uh, I, think, I think that's pretty good. That's, that's true. That's why we don't shove them off into some other part of the building. That's why we're not, you know, don't get rid of them. Don't put them over in a gym where they're just, you know, eating pizza and acting goofy. I mean, that's, we're training them up as, as worshipers. And God delights to hear their worship. And God delights to hear their songs and their cries and their coos. And he delights to hear the little voices who are just, you know, two beats off 
in the creed or two beats off in the prayer. They're not reading, but they're repeating what you say. And they're there and they're speaking. I love it. I love to hear them pray. And I love to hear them say amen. I love to hear them sing the doxology. That's why we need them here is because we need to silence the voice of the enemy and the avenger. And that is, is the prescription for it. It's the cries and the worship and the praise of children, which is acceptable to God. The Christian identity of our children must be celebrated and talked about a lot. We ask them catechism questions like, who made you? God. What else did God make? All things. Uh, can you see God? No, but he can see me. These little questions uh, uh, remind them of who they are and whose world they live in. Who do you belong to? I belong to the Lord Jesus. They must learn the greatness and the glory of this privilege. And they learn it first the way that David learned about the closeness of God and the goodness of God. He learned about God's nearness at his mother's breast. And so your children learn. They learn about their identity in Christ when you hold them on, their, on, on your lap when you feed them, when you teach them how to walk and how to talk, when you express yourself through the words you say, through your warmth, they know about the love and the nearness of their Savior through your expressions of love for them, beginning in infancy. When they start to move and start to crawl and then even start to walk and run, they're still little priests. And they learn now that there are things they must not touch and things they must not do and attitudes they must not have. God gives Israel the Ten Commandments in his infancy. He, he gives the Ten Commandments at the very beginning. He doesn't wait until they're all grown up and wait for maturity. God gave his priests in, in this priestly phase is when he gives them clear, detailed instruction. When you bring a sacrifice, when you bring an offering, you do this, and then you do this, and you do this and this and this. And this is the order that I want you to do it in. I want you to put your hands on the animal. I want you to wash it with clean water. I want you to cut it up and put it on the altar. Divide it up. Then I want you to uh, uh, pour on the grain offering. And then I want you to eat it together between you and the worshiper and God. And then I want you to say a blessing. Don't mix it up. Don't ever mess that up. Do it the same way every time. That pleases me when you do it the same way every time, God says. Don't improvise. When you bring incense to be burned uh, in the tabernacle. Here are the ingredients. I don't want anything else. I don't want you to make up your own recipe for incense. Remember Nadab and Abihu tried that and it turned out as a disaster. God was not pleased by their improvisation. And this is what priests must do. Priests must follow the rules the same way every time. And so rules for your home have to be given in the same way. Very clear, very simple, especially with young children. Uh, see, most people have this assumption that you go easy on babies and toddlers. You don't need rules. You just kind of let them, you know, kind of do their thing. And their, their rebellion and their attitudes and their willfulness, well, it's just, you know, silly because it's baby stuff and they'll grow out of it. Uh, and, and then when you get to the teenage years, that's when you really knuckle down and that's when you get tough. <sighs> no. Uh, it's too late when they're teenagers. How are you going to buckle down on somebody who's never been told no their whole life? How are you now going to get serious? How are you going to get tough? That's absolutely backwards. It's when they're babies that their hearts are soft and manageable. And it's when they're babies and when they're infants and they're toddlers and they're seven, eight, and nine years old, that's when they're going to learn what obedience is. That's when they're going to learn what submission is so that you're clear and you are precise and you communicate uh, uh, simply your expectations with young children, just as God has done with us in our priestly phase. He doesn't give us things that are too hard for us. 
He doesn't give us things that it's impossible for us to live up to. He says this. He says to Israel, these things are not far from you. And you do the same for your children. You don't give them things that will exasperate them that they aren't able to do or comprehend or understand. Our expectations must be simple and clear and attainable so that when they disobey, the disobedience isn't because they didn't understand. The disobedience isn't because you weren't clear enough. The disobedience was just disobedience and then it can be treated as it should be because they have clearly refused to obey clear instructions. They must know their boundaries and they must submit to those boundaries. They have to learn to submit to the authority of God and you are the authority that God has placed over them. And see, when your children are small, you spend the majority of your time teaching them to submit. That's the one lesson over everything. I mean, you may be teaching them to read and you may be able to teach them to count and their colors and everything, but the big lesson is teaching them to submit. And there are weeks where you think that's what my entire life consists of. I am just here to teach this child how to obey me. And that's true. Sometimes that's exactly what it is but it's essential that you keep it up and don't grow weary in well-doing, that your discipline be quick and sure and instant and obvious. Communicate the pain of sin very clearly and insist on obedience. You must insist that your small children, your young children, you must insist that they obey you. Do not put up with rebellion. Do not put up with disobedience. Yes, small children are capable of disobedience. You know, the sin nature doesn't show up when they turn 14, right? I mean, you know that. They're born with it. Uh, Yes, they belong to Jesus. Yes, they trust in their creator, as David said. But like you and me, our little ones sin. And we are in their life to correct that sin. So if you put a bowl on the high chair tray and they knock it off, and you're not sure if it was deliberate or if you're not sure if it was willful, you can put it back up there on the tray and you say, look, don't knock that off again. Don't, don't do that again. And, uh, and then you turn on your back and then it goes flying. Uh, you, uh, that's, that's rebellion. That's disobedience. Uh, if, they pitch, if they pitch a fit at bedtime or they arch their back and protest when you pick them up and to move them away from something they can't have or something they shouldn't touch. They're going for a, a, you know, a, a wall socket or they're trying to put their finger in a, in a, in a fan blade or something. And they, uh, you, you stop them from injury. You stop them, you pick them up and they, they flip out. You know, you can tell. That's not, you know, that's not sweetness coming out when they do that. That's, that's rebellion. That's hatred. If they were big enough, they would smack you. They would, you know, wring your neck if they could. Uh, It's pure fury and hatred and rebellion. And these are all things that require correction. It's not cute to flip the bowl off the table over and over and over. That's not silly. That's not funny. If I've told you to stop and I've told you not to do it, it's rebellion. You are disobeying me. And by disobeying me, you're disobeying God. So they require correction. And sometimes... All it takes is for you to look them in the eye and say, Daddy said not to do that. I'm very displeased with you right now. Uh, I'm not happy at all. 
uh, you must not do that again. Sometimes just that, that look with, with very small children, you know, you get that little bottom lip curl and you get a little tear down the cheek and you know that you've gotten, you've gotten through, but some harder hearts may need something more than that. You know, and I'm talking about even, yeah, it's not, I'm, I'm not going to put a month on it, uh, but you, you, can, you can tell, you can see it in their eyes that they know that what they're doing is, is rebellious and sinful. So maybe they need a little, a little thump, a little flick, you know, right, right where the top of the thigh meets the bottom of the booty, right there, uh, right there, a little flick. Don't leave a mark even, but just enough to get their attention. I'm, next week, I'm, we're going to do the liturgy of, of discipline and the liturgy of the use of the rod of correction. So I'm, I'm going to save uh, some more of that for, for next week. But the point is, even small children know by your words and your facial expressions that you're displeased with them. They can tell that you're not happy. And what you're doing at this phase is you're plucking little weeds of sin out. You're weeding the garden before these little weeds grow into oak trees. And this is constant work. This is constant effort. And sometimes it's exhausting and you've got to keep it up. You've got to keep doing it. Uh, so that when, when they're teenagers and when they're adults, uh, you've, you've, you've dealt with, you've dealt with the big stuff. You've dealt with the, the hatefulness and the rebellion. All of this that I'm describing, this is not abusive. This is not domineering. Opposing your child's sin is your job. It's faithful parenting. You want them to obey your word so that they'll learn to obey God's word. Do you really want God chasing them around all their life and forcing them to do what he says, just like you have to do? Or do you want to say what they need to do and have them do it? If you want them to obey God's word, then you need to make sure that they're quick to obey your word. And with that in mind, discipline must be consistent and quick and loving. They need to know that God loves them and therefore he disciplines them consistently. When your children are in this priestly phase, they need rules and stories and rituals. They need liturgies. They thrive on schedules. Children thrive in orderly environments. This is what we do when we wake up. This is nap time. This is snack time. This is what we do when daddy comes home. It's the same things over and over. In the evenings, our liturgy when our children were small was supper and bath and book and bed. You know what we're going to do tonight? We're going to eat supper. We're going to take baths. As soon as supper's done, we're going to take baths and we'll read a book and we're going to go to bed. You know what we're going to do tomorrow night? It's going to be supper, bath, book, bed every single night. That's what we're going to do. Same routine. We aren't making it up as we go along. We're not going to ask tonight, we're going to do baths tonight? Are we going to read a book tonight? No, it's already been decided. We decided one time what we're doing, and this is what we're doing. This is the routine. And children thrive in environments of order and liturgy and schedule because we know what to do. You see, God gave his people Israel in their priestly stage. He gave them liturgies to follow so that they didn't have to make it up. He gave them a calendar of celebration so they know this is when we do this feast and this is when we do this fast and, and this is when we have this celebration. They follow the liturgies. And so there are liturgies for dinner time. This is what we do when supper's on the table. This We wash up, we sit down, we sit on our bottoms, we sit up straight. Um, these are our liturgies for bedtime and bath time and playtime. We even have liturgies for how we make up when, when we get mad at each other, when somebody takes the toy or somebody cheated in the game or whatever, routine is so important for young children. Now, we're not slaves to the schedule. There are vacations and there are holidays and there are special times where we do things differently. But ordinarily, 
we, we, give, we, we give children uh, a thriving environment when we, uh, when we have a liturgy, uh, when we have a routine, when we have a schedule. Now, eventually, they grow out of that stage and they approach the teenage years and they take on more responsibility and take on more kingly tasks. As teenagers, they learn obedience and humility and submission um, so that they can be faithful kings. Uh, they've taken the lessons of priesthood and now they apply it as kings. Use of the rod decreases over the years and they start to live with the consequences of their decisions like kings do. You don't provide the same kind of oversight to a teenager that you do a six-year-old. When, when they were smaller, they needed more oversight. But now as they grow in godly self-discipline, we allow them more freedoms. We allow them to make decisions for themselves. They have to learn how to exercise judgment. And you're giving this uh, ability to them, a little bit of leash, a little bit of leeway to make decisions in a, in a time where they're not going to be homeless because they still live in your home. They're not going to miss a meal because they still live in your house. And yet they're making decisions for themselves and living with the consequences of their decisions. They learn to exercise judgment. And, and sometimes that means that we allow them to make decisions that will hurt them, not uh, deadly stuff, not criminal stuff, but giving them freedom to fail in areas that they need to learn about. And as they become teenagers, it's time to back off of the hovering, to allow them to uh, make decisions. So they should be working, doing jobs for money as the opportunity comes. How do they spend their money? Well, you give them some instruction, but if they do something foolish with their money, if, if, if they do something silly or useless, it's not, you don't spank them for that, uh, but neither do you give them their money back. <laughs> I'm not going to bail you out of this. You still got a bed and you still got a place at the table. That's what I promised to provide you. But they got to learn to use their money wisely. If you spend your money for this, you can't have that. Kings have to learn to exercise wisdom and live with the consequences of their decisions. Okay, that was a really dumb decision, wasn't it? Now you have to live with it. How are you going to work through this? How are you going to make it better? They have to learn and we have to let them. If they ask for advice, we freely give it. Kings need to learn wisdom and wisdom means figuring out what needs to be done and how to do it, how to apply what they learned in the priestly phase and learn to apply it to all kinds of situations. They need to learn how to fear God when mom and dad aren't around which means that we have to push them out into more and more situations where they're on their own without us. Um, this is where the influence of faithful father, fathers is, is desperately needed. Uh, moms who haven't thought this through tend to want to keep their sons in the priestly phase until they leave home. Now, I'm, not, I'm painting with a broad brush, not all moms. Uh, some moms know uh, what, what needs to happen here. Uh, but there, there are moms who are risk adverse, who want to hold their babies close and not, not allow them to grow into kingly uh, 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 maturity while they're still at home. And so, and, and when you do that, what you end up with is this thoroughly domesticated boy who can't, who can't exist. He can't function outside the home. You know, you end up raising this uh, six foot house cat is, is what you do. <laughs> Um, you know how you're at somebody's house and all of a sudden, oh, you got a cat. <laughs> I didn't know you had a cat. And sometimes you're at somebody's house. It's like, oh, you, you've got a grown son. Well, where did he come from? Um, and he just, you know, lays around the living room and eats what you give him. 
Um, fathers must put their sons in situations where they're out on their own and they're taking risks and learning how to be a man, how to figure it out, how to own their mistakes and be a problem solver, uh, to be pushed into positions where, buddy, you're, you're on your own. You got to figure it out. Come on. What are you going to do? How are you going to solve this? This is also the time to learn how to sacrifice. Kings die for their people. This is what Jesus shows us. A king dies. Teenagers are selfish and obnoxious. And so they have to learn how to give up their life and give up their comfort for others. They need opportunities to serve in the church and in the home and to work for others. And then eventually they grow up into a prophetic stage of life as they prepare to leave the house. Prophets speak for God. Prophets teach God's word. So not only must our children be obedient priests and wise kings, but they also must be articulate prophets, able to communicate God's truth to others. As they approach adulthood, they should find opportunities to teach and train younger children, younger brothers and sisters. The instruction we give them in this stage is advice and encouragement as they face trials and difficulties. All along the way, the challenge for us is to raise children who are focused outside of themselves on other people. We want children who know you're not everything. You're not the center of the universe, but neither are you nothing. You are a light of the world. You are the hope of the world. That is the reality. So what kind of father can train up an obedient child through all these stages? An obedient father is the only kind. Only a father who is a faithful priest himself, one who humbles himself under God's word and submits to it can raise obedient priests. Only a father who gives his children a love for wisdom can raise a wise king. Only a father who listens to God and masters his word can can can. Uh, can be a father who raises articulate prophets. God nurtured his children in this environment of holiness and love and joy and celebration and service and discipline. And that's what we endeavor to do. As we labor to an establish a, an environment of righteousness in our homes, we build an atmosphere of love and joy and celebration and service and discipline in the home. All the pollution of the world can't overcome a godly atmosphere in the home. So we work to produce the proper environment for holiness. That means making worship and obedience to God the center of our life. Nothing, nothing, nothing is more important than worship and obedience to God. Nothing we do and nothing we say, nothing we like is more important than that. And that, uh, that attitude and that environment includes our children in, in the, the body of Christ, in the worship and obedience of God as they mature through these stages of life. We're going to pick up here next week and we're going to use this as a foundation for the rest of our study. But for now, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for bringing us up and we thank you for maturing us. And we ask you that you would, by your spirit, continue to grow us up into faithful priests and kings and prophets as you conform us to the image of your son. And so may we be faithful in leading our children through these stages of maturity all their days. We thank you for them. They're precious gifts. And we pray that we would be faithful to do the work that you've called us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.